I'm excited that you're here. I think not only have we already had a fantastic morning, but I think God has got something uh, good in store for us this morning. Um, so, um, to say Easter is over doesn't do that justice because we have a risen Lord. However, for our post-Easter series, uh, there really couldn't be a more appropriate book for us to dive into than the book of James. Uh, as you can see across the front of the stage here, we have a word out there. Um, our, our ladies are just so amazing at queuing things up for our series. And the focus for our series is on apprentice, being an apprentice. An apprentice will, will become like the master. And now I know uh, as we kind of talked and had been chatting with people about doing the book of James in our series, um, it gets, it gets kind of mixed reviews. Uh, some people are super ecstatic. They say, James is my favorite book. I love that book. Sign me up. And there's people that are like, ah, okay, we'll endure. So I know how you feel because um, for some of us, maybe it's more uh, like poetry is your thing. So when we jump into the book of Psalms, you're like, that's speaking my love language. And you just love those series. This is not a very poetical book. I personally find myself that I get a little bit lost in like the rhyme and the prose. And there's just something that's lost in, um, lost in translation with the book of Psalms. It sounds so much better in Hebrew. I'm joking. That's... If you've ever heard Hebrew, it's kind of like, what? Um, maybe some of you, more narrative is your style. Where you love it when you're jumping into the Old Testament and the book of Genesis. And it's just story after story and you love that. But let's be honest, there's other people. I mean, I've, I've read those stories and sometimes I'm reading the narratives going like, where is this going? What is this about? And I get a little bit lost. Well, good news is James isn't really much of a narrative, so there's none of that. Um, uh, some of us, maybe you're more into like the book of Hebrews or Romans, where you love what uh, the authors are doing with theology and, and ruminating about what it, who Christ is and, and what that means for us. And, and others of you are just like, oh man, like just lost. There's too many big words. Paul and his run-on sentences. There's so many concepts introduced that you're like, this is way over my head. I just can't wait to get back to something else. Well, good news is, is that James actually doesn't spend a lot of time theologizing. It's a legit word. Um, and so you might feel right at home. However, where James puts us all on the same page is that I think, especially with this idea of an apprenticeship, what it means to be an apprentice, or more, what we're looking at today, what it takes to be an apprentice. And I think that's something that we can all relate with. Whether you're, you're a mom and you're spending time with other moms, maybe older moms kind of learning what this whole thing of having toddlers is, is like and what it's actually going to take to get through those few years. Or uh, maybe you're someone who's just gotten a job and you're, and you're stepping into the trades. And that, that is language that very much works with, um, with the illustration of where we're going. So you can relate with that. Um, if, you're, if you're younger and looking at getting a job this summer, I think that James has got something to offer for you this morning in terms of what it takes to be an apprentice or what it takes to be good at, at your job. And as I'm looking around here, I'm seeing one thing is missing that is absolutely essential to this sermon, and that's a clock. So I, have not, I didn't bring my watch up with me, so... We'll go with this. Someone like 10-2, give me a wave. Like, what are we sitting at right now? This is not that good. You'll give me a wave. <laughs> perfect. We got the bishop in the, in the thing. He's going to wave me down. It's perfect. Okay, I want to say, say a couple of things to you uh, about the book of James before we jump in. And then, uh, so here's how things break down. Sometimes people, I don't know if you guys are interested in how things work kind of behind the scenes that you don't get to see here at Hillcrest. I'm a very transparent person, so I have no problem telling you. At the table, when we're talking about what kind of series we're going to do, um, it was decided, you know, prayerfully and, and stuff and conversationally uh, that we're going to do James and we're going to give five Sundays to it. And I'm like, 
are you kidding me? The book of James in five Sundays? That's a chapter. We can't do that. Like, we need to, I'm the type of person that, like, let's take three verses and let's, like, parse these babies out. And let's, like, jump into the, the meaning and the context. And, like, we could, like, there's just so much there. We could, we could stretch this out for, a, like, till next year if we wanted. And we didn't get next year, but we did get longer than five Sundays. However, that didn't help me because I still got tasked with James 1, an entire chapter this morning. So I'm going to do my best to get through it and not be long with it and to stay focused on it. And, uh, and there's actually the first chapter of James. If you're only going to be at Hillcrest for this Sunday, you came on the right Sunday. Because James actually covers everything he's talking about in his letter. He covers in the first chapter. He mentions it. He makes comment about it. It's almost like it's a bit of a, a summary or a table of content. So this is a great chapter to memorize and to really immerse yourself in because it, it kind of captures the whole book of James. But we'll get there. We'll get there. One of the neat things about the book of James is that it was written early. It's thought, some people would argue that it was, it's, the, it's the oldest of the letters or the earliest that we have. So about uh, 48 AD is kind of where they're coming. And it's rich. It's rich with allusions and, and echoes of what we find in the Gospels. Now, the cool thing is that James was actually written before the Gospels. So it's neat that a lot of the echoes and stuff that we'll find in the book of James that relate back to Matthew and Mark and Luke are, are actually not taken word for word from a Gospel text, but it actually happened before the Gospels were written. So this is like during the time of there's an, like after Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, everybody thinks that he's, he's coming right back. Like they think, like our lifetime coming back. So everybody's spreading the word and the, and the Gospels going forth and people's lives are being radically changed and this is all well and good. And there's like an oral, kind of an oral tradition that's happening where people are speaking and recounting the, the, the teachings of Jesus and it's all well and good. And then all of a sudden people began to realize, oh, maybe Jesus might be taking a little bit longer than just our lifetime. So we better start writing some stuff down. Hence where sort of our Gospels end up coming out of. Another thing I'd like to say is that James's letter actually comes to a church or coming is addressed to people in a real time, in a real space that are facing real challenges. It's a book that wants to address the issues at hand and offer some encouragement. For instance, now you wouldn't send a recipe of how to prepare the world's greatest beef tenderloin to your vegan friends. Am I right? They would no longer be your friends if you did that. You just wouldn't do that, right? Why? Because it's, it's totally irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant to send recipes or give people information on how to prepare meat if they don't eat meat. Correct? Well, the same logic is sort of true that, that James isn't writing into a vacuum, just ruminating any kind of thought that comes into his head, but rather he's being specific and intentional with what he's addressing. And the encouraging thing, the thing that puts us all on the same page, is that many of the issues, if not all of the issues, that James addresses in his letter actually relate to us. Think about that. That the issues at hand in the day 2,000 years ago, that they still have application, power, and encouragement to us today. Man, that's exciting. I don't know. I get really excited about that. If you struggle with anger, James is for you. Quarreling, James is for you. Favoritism, controlling your tongue, boasting, patience, prayer. These are all the things that James is setting out to address. And now, James has a sense of responsibility to address these issues. And we're going to jump in here with uh, James 1.1. I won't spend too much time on this. But it says that James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And I've highlighted in bold there, servant. The reason for this is that this is James, they believe it's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote this. 
And now James is an interesting character, and I wish I could spend more time on it this morning, but, but I can't. But just to say this, his testimony would be that while his half-brother Jesus walked this earth, James was not a follower of Christ. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. There's accounts and kind of uh, stories throughout the Gospels that sort of give us indication of this, that his family actually didn't really totally understand the full picture of who Jesus was. And then it's in, in Paul's letters, actually, that after Christ was risen from the dead, he visited some people, and Paul records that actually Jesus shows up after his resurrection and talks to James, his brother. Wouldn't have you loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation? Anyway, something drastic changes in the heart of James, and all of a sudden, he understands totally who his brother was. And James actually, as tradition tells us, became a very prominent person in the early church. Acts tells stories, and it almost seems as though James is sort of the one that, that people are running to and looking to for leadership um, in the early church. So that's James. And I love the way that he write, comes at this letter with some humility. He doesn't say, I am the half-brother of Jesus our risen Lord, but rather his statement is simple. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, love that humility. And so we want to read James's letter to us as though he's wanting to challenge us of what it means to be an apprentice of the master. So in a way, James is sort of in a, an apprenticeship manual, if you will. Here we go. We'll jump into section one. Okay, these sections work really great together. Now, James is sort of like a sort of like a book, like the book of Proverbs that spouts wisdom and kind of, or, but except where Proverbs isn't really organized by based on thought. It's sort of like just sometimes you'll encounter Proverbs as like a list of random wisdom sayings that maybe don't have one line doesn't have much to do with uh, with the verses above it. James is quite different. He's distilled his wisdom down into sort of proverbs and, and quick sayings and, and, and sentences that, that are easy to remember and that, that flow really well together. And yet, he is actually, there's a progression of thought in the way that he's doing this as well. So I'd like to look at four sections of those this morning, if that's okay with you. Um, and we'll jump right in here with James 1. Uh, verses 2 to 8. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there this morning and we'll jump in. <clears throat> so after the greeting, he jumps in right with this. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Now, I need to stop right here. In ancient times, in encountering a letter, there's sort of a format to a letter. You would have a greeting, and then you would have sort of some nice words about the recipients. You would say, like, grace and peace to you. Blessings to you. But James just cuts straight to the choice. And it's, it's meant to be, it's kind of lost when we read it, but it's meant to be a bit of a, a shocking, like, oh, this is unusual. So it's meant to get your attention right off the hop. And, and it does, because he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds. What in the world? Now, some, can you imagine being, remember I told you that this is a church that's in the midst of trials, likely persecution, people are in threat of losing their life, and you get a, a letter from um, a head guy in your organization just telling you to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It kind of makes you think this is the reason for a letter and not a face-to-face -face visit. And am I right? How many of you, when you're going through a difficult time and you've got that all-too-happy good friend who shows up to you first thing in the morning and can tell you're not doing that well and they say, oh, don't worry, be happy, or oh, just, you know, and they give you kind of a quaint thing. You just want to like, just, you know, snap them in the nose. I know, I know what I'm like when I'm going, trust me. Like in my household, I mean, things look all well put together up here, but trust me, in my household, if Chris isn't happy, ain't nobody's happy, okay? And so if somebody, if I'm going through a rough time and somebody greets me with this quaint, trivial, oh, don't worry about it, like, like I'm, I'm needing to leave the room, I'm 
furious. James isn't being quaint here. He's not, he's not being witty. He's not being rude in this. I want to, I want to mention this because uh, I've, been, I've been struggling a little bit with, with the text this morning because it seemed one way on Friday and then after, uh, after attending Gord Peekman's funeral and then also hearing about the tragedy of the accident up by Humboldt with the hockey team. I'm sure everybody kind of knows that. It's not, it's not far from anybody's mind, but where 15 people died in a, as a, a bus ran into a semi or, or something like that, and it's, it's tragic. Trials of many kinds. And yet it would be rude and ignorant for anybody to, to address people who are facing something like that and with something trivial that would be like, oh, consider a pure joy. Put on a happy face. Or even, God's got a plan, right? You would be angry and outraged at anybody that would approach a tender, delicate, real-life situation with words like that. And sometimes we look at James and think that maybe that's what he's doing. But we stop reading too early because as he goes on in verse 3, he says, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Mature and complete, this idea of wholeness and integrity. Not lacking anything. That's James's desire. That's his view on trials. It's not just putting on a happy face in the midst of it and choosing to be happy. But this joy that he speaks about is a pure joy that it, it has something of substance. Something that makes a difference. What is it? That's what my heart is asking. There's a bit of a reality check that's happening here. A reality check of what God desires for us. In those words, not lacking anything. Do you know that God doesn't want you to be lacking anything? That his desire for you is wholeness and completeness? That you could have a sense of integrity about you? And that's available. <clears throat> we jump into... Jump into verse 5. Here's James's next words. He says, In the midst of this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Ask. Isn't that kind of a neat little verse? Remember those like little neat ways that I told you James uh, structures things? Verse 5 is one of those. Simply put, if you ask, if you lack, ask because he gives. So very simple. But ask whom? Ask whom? You know, he doesn't say, talk to your neighbor. He doesn't say, read a book. He doesn't say, call a friend. He doesn't say, write a post. He doesn't say, send a text. And he doesn't even say, Sleep on it. He says, when you face trials of many kinds, pray. Ask God. You see, I think the joy that James is talking about is not rooted in just being choosing to be happy amidst life's trials, but it's a joy that is rooted and found in who God is. That when you face trials, you return to the one who is all-knowing, all-understanding, and you ask for wisdom. The way through trials is prayer. Luke, uh, Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is, and here it is, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. This is the kind of master we serve. 
What's neat is uh, tradition tells us that uh, James had a nickname. And it wasn't a very flattering one, although it really is quite flattering. His nickname was Camel Knees. Can you imagine having a nickname like that? Old Camel Knees. Now, it's not because he had some weird birth defect that he had overly large knees. The term came from that James was known as a man of prayer. That that was a priority in his life. And the, the reality is that he prayed so much on his knees that his knees were like calloused and knobby and worn because of his prayer life. Also, camel knees isn't such a, such a bad term, eh? But he's living it out. That in the first part of his letter, dealing with trials, he brings us back to prayer. I, uh, I, uh, after going down to a conference and seeing Todd Atkinson preach for a while, my wife bugged me ruthlessly because anytime I'd be preaching, Todd always does like this, shoulder roll when he talks. He'll stop and he'll shoulder roll. And I started doing these shoulder rolls and my wife would make fun of me all the time. We become like those that we admire or we look up to, right? And like Steve, I'm going to preach long this morning for you all. <laughs> long for you all this morning with no clock. Oh, and this whole section is like doing the wave. Well, I'll know to cut it down. Here we go. Verses 6 and 8. Now we're kind of starting to bring this home. So we need to ask. And here we go. In verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. James is challenging here that it's not enough to just simply ask of God and throw the request out there, but that we actually have a responsibility too when we ask. That when we ask, we believe and we don't doubt. Have you ever thought about how annoying double-mindedness is? You know, when you're in a conversation with somebody and you're talking to them, making eye contact, and they pull their phone out? Oh, that burns me. That's annoying. Or how about even in terms of this, this theme of apprenticeship? Many of, many of you, okay, you, you have businesses, and you have employees. How annoying is double-mindedness with people that, that aren't really that interested in being there? You know what I mean? Like, like they show up to work, and they punch the clock, and yet, they're somewhere else, right? So annoying, so annoying. On day one of, uh, of uh, my training as, a, as an HVAC apprentice under my cousin in Calgary, day one, I showed up and... Uh, he said to me, he kind of explained the thing to me, we're going to be installing uh, new furnace systems and doing duct design and installing all the duct work and stuff for new homes in Calgary. And I was like, okay. So he kind of gave me the thing, he's like, you think you can like, kind of handle that? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, I'm, I'm at SAID at the time, I'm studying uh, architectural technology, and I'm, uh, I, I need some money to pay for this. And my cousin had graciously said he had a, a business all set up. He said, I'd happily bring you on and, and train you, and we'll get, we'll get some cash flow going your way. I said, okay. Day one, I showed up, and he said, you're going to need some tools for this job. And I said, okay. So I showed up, and he starts listing off kind of all these tools. He's going through his garage, grabbing a bunch of his old stuff, getting me set up. And by the end, there was like a whole collection of tools. Now, when I first started, I just went down and bought like just the cheapest little tool, utility tool belt you could get from... Uh, like Home Depot, and after he was done, my pockets were full, and I'm ready for the job. So I show up at the job, and we're working away, and I got to tell you, uh, the thing I had bought was, uh, actually it was from Canadian Tire, and it was the, it was the kind that like had clip-ons. You know, you put the belt on, and then you, you'd clip on the, all the pockets, and you could rearrange them, and I thought, that 
That was the cat's meow. I needed to have that. So I thought I'd be the coolest tin basher around. So I bought this, and he loads me up with all these tools, and we go out there. And honestly, by after two hours, you guys, I can hardly walk. There are pressure points created on my hips that are so painful that I'm like hobbling around. Like he's trying to show me stuff and get me to do some work and I'm, I can barely move. And so I'm like, ah. Oh. And, and so I, I, I got myself like, I'd take off my belt and then I'd, I'd come over and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd understand what he wants me to do. I'd go back to my belt and I'd, I'd grab the tools that I needed and I'd go and he, he'd, he'd just be like, Chris, what are you doing? I'd be like, well, I'm, I got, you know, he's like, put your belt on. So I'd go and I'd put my belt on for a little while and it'd just start just killing me. And so I'd have to take it off. And I, again, it seems like every time that I'd take my belt off, he would be right there asking for something. And I'd have to run to my pouch to get the tool. And he'd be like, are you here to work or not? I'm like, I'm here. He's like, then put your belt on. Okay. Once I finally got set up with the appropriate apparatus where your shoulders carry some of the weight. There's no point loads on your hips. And after a few months... I was able to carry all the tools I needed with me on the job site. And it was so much more handy. <clears throat> if I had to title this section of James, I would say it has to do with commitment. Are you all in is the question it asks. Or are you double-minded? You can't, you can't learn and be an apprentice unless you put the belt on and show up for work. I remember years, a few years later, working with another guy, and we'd, we'd, have, we'd cross paths lots of time in this line of work, doing duct work, um, with guys who were just doing piecework. They'd just show up, and they're just there to do, get the job done, get paid, and go away. And I remember how silly it looked when I showed up and the guy that I was working with, he would do, um, install the furnace, hang the trunk or like the plenum and do like all the main duct work. And then it was my job to do, connect everything and run all the pipe down and stuff like that. Anyways, but he showed up with a table and toolboxes. And I remember watching him in the basement as he would go for each tool to the table and then back to his toolbox and back. And the crazy thing about, about guys like that is you never knew when they left the job site. He'd, he'd get up and go for coffee and you never really knew where he was. And when he was there, you never really knew if he was working because he seemed like he was just walking circles. It was exactly, exactly the way that I was. And so I think there's this, this urgency that from the book of James that says, you know what, it's, you're not going to make a very good apprentice unless you show up. You put the belt on and you commit to working there. Harry, you can switch to the next slide there. What does it take to be an apprentice? It takes commitment. And the question I think that the Lord would ask of us today is, are you all in? You know, the great thing about our Lord is that he's okay with some double-mindedness. But he wants to work on that. He wants to work on that. So maybe you're here today and maybe you realize that there is some level of double-mindedness in your mind or in your heart. You know what? You can hold that before the Lord and he'll deal with that. He'll work on that with you. So you can be free to put the belt on and commit to what you're doing. Section 2, in verses 9 and 11, here we go. Now, we want to remember that this is still in the context of trials, but here, here we go. Verse 9 starts off, it says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Here's another one of those phrases where James is intending to be, to have some shock value for this. Believers in their humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich fade away even while they go about their business. 
Now, the world that James is writing to here is actually a very different world than the one that we face today. In fact, it's almost kind of like the ratios are uh, inverted. In in James's day, like 90% of people were poverty-stricken. They were poor. They were, you know, working like food-to-mouth type situation. And 10% would be considered the wealthy and able to afford things in luxury of life, okay? Today we find it actually, you know, it's more like 10% of our society now may struggle with, you know, being kind of below the poverty line and really needing to, you know, work hand-to-mouth. And yet, the majority of us, 90% of our society, is, is wealthy. We can, I mean, let's not get into mismanagement and what we do. You know, but, but the reality is, is that we're, we're wealthy. By, by world standards, we are very, very wealthy. And so we got to ask ourselves, what is, what is James wanting to do here? Is he wanting to just insult every rich person that reads this? Or what is he saying? No, he's saying that believers, key word there, those who believe that if you find yourself in a humble circumstance, you can take pride in that. It's a high position. Why? Because of what he's just talked about, that the the trials are intended to produce perfection. Produce wholeness in your life. It sounds a lot like, uh, do you remember Jesus in in Mark uh, making comments like how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And uh, there's a story in there. I won't won't go read it directly just for sake of time. But there's a rich young ruler in there who comes to Jesus and basically says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus' challenge to him is like, wow, you, you know the commandments. Like, and, uh, and the guy says, well, I've, I've done all that. I've, I'm keeping the commandments. That's the way, I'm living that way. And then Jesus says, oh, you want to you take it to the next level? Okay, well, Jesus' words to him is, go and sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And it says that that rich young ruler, that was more than he was able to do. That he leaves Jesus with his head hung because He's a man of great wealth and can't give it up to follow Jesus. You cannot buy your apprenticeship. I think one of the things that James is challenging here is the logic of it. How, you know what, things do come easier for the rich. Right? If you're poor and in a humble circumstance and not sure where your next meal comes from versus being somebody that has the finances, who's able to pay someone to cook and clean or do those things, those things come easier. Money makes things easier. Money is convenient. And yet, I think James is saying, you know what? You, the kind of apprenticeship that God is interested in, being a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot buy your apprenticeship. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a price to pay. So what does matter most? James gives us a clue in the very next statement in verse 12. Here's what he says. He says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised for those, here it is, who love him. Jesus is not asking for adherence to the law, but to be in loving relationship with him. There is a focusing that's happening here. In response to the rich and poor dilemma, James challenges us as to whether our lives will speak of love for ourselves or love for our Lord. It is via loving relationship with Christ, via prayer, that sustains us through our trials. And we are reminded here of the, the reward of a crown of life that is promised for those who love God. I think of, uh, you know, those sports interviews that they, that they do on TV where they interview in between the hockey, um, in between the hockey uh, 
uh, intermissions and stuff. And a lot of times, you know, the hockey players, you know, they'll be like, ah, oh, you know, you guys were really going through a tough spot there. We didn't know how period one was going to go. But, you know, period two, you really turned it around. And, and the, the hockey players will say, you know, like it's, it's a credit to my teammates or a credit to hard work or a credit to a change in strategy or switching up our lineups that produce the results that we were looking for. And yet the truth is that in, in, in reality, when it comes to an apprenticeship with Christ, it's not about our efforts or about us. But it's about what Christ alone has done. For maturing Christians, we know that it is Christ alone who, Christ alone who brings us victoriously through each and every trial that we face. It takes focus to be an apprentice. And that's what really matters. Next slide, please, Harry. And I feel like the, the question that, that God would ask us today is, are you taking it easy? Or are you focused on what really matters? In the same way that verse 12 speaks about a crown of life for those who love him, that it really is about relationship with our Lord, not about just doing stuff. I think about retirement, how our culture says that retirement is all about getting enough money in the bank so that you can then just take it easy. That the end game is to be rich and want for nothing. And yet when you contrast that with what it means to be an apprentice of Christ, your purpose and focus is not yourself, but your focus is Christ, to be made more like him. Is it about getting it done or getting it right? I remember putting up tin, and uh, one of the things you do is you'd run that, those big trunks, the big ducks first, and then the little ducks next. And on top of all the ducks, you'd have to cut out sort of your takeoffs for where your runs were going to go. And sometimes you'd get ahead of yourself and you'd get a whole bunch of ducked up and then realize that you'd forgotten to cut out one of these takeoffs. And it was kind of a difficult, a difficult situation to have um, a pair of scissors this big standing on the top rung of a six-foot ladder, leaning over a chunk of duct in which you only had eight inches of room, trying to cut a circle to get a takeoff in. Very awkward. And because it was going to take you hours to take down the duct you just put up, that's, that's what you were stuck with doing. Now, in theory, if that duct was on the ground, there was a nice little circle cutter that you use with your drill and it cuts a nice clean hole and the takeoff goes in and it's just, it's perfect. It fits the way it's supposed to be. But when you're jammed up there on top of a ladder cutting, the odds of you getting a nice perfectly cut circle, very, very, very slim. And so sometimes what we would have to do is we would just cut lines across in this circle and then bend the duck down so it makes sort of a circle and it was a jagged mess. You'd usually pull your hand out and you'd be bleeding and you're working with tin and it was just horrible. And then you'd put your takeoff on and you'd use, you'd use your tape here. Nope. You'd use some tape and you would just tape it all up so it was nice and sealed. Now it wasn't pretty, but it was done. And sometimes I feel like in our Christian lives, we do the same thing. Rather than doing things the right way with an integrity, we're just more focused about getting things done. And yet, God as our coach would say, it's, it's not about whether you win or lose this game, but it's about how you play the game. Now, I'm probably going to have a lot of like football dads and soccer moms really mad at me for that. But, but it's true. That we want our young people especially to be, to be the type that even if they lose, they can hold their heads up high because they played with integrity and they gave everything that they had. Right? That's important. And yet sometimes we think that that doesn't, it's less important in matters of life. But it's not. The way that you play the game is important. And we've already heard from James in terms of God's thoughts on this. That God desires to give us all the tools that we need so that we lack nothing. 
that there's a wholeness and an integrity with the way in which we live our lives. We'll move on to our third section here. Verses 13 and 15. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James seems interested in correcting a false belief here. He says that there, it isn't God who tempts us. He cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. But it's our own evil desires. How often do we think that God is the source of our problem rather than the solution? How often, how often rather than prayers for wisdom, we utter blame and accusation towards God? We have a wrong view of God. Thinking that he is the one tempting, he's pulling the strings, or thinking that he's, he himself is not above evil. If you think about the crowd that James is writing to where uh, many Greek gods are worshipped, the thing about the Greek gods is, man, they didn't seem like gods at all in the sense that they were just like larger human beings with lots of power and just full of sin. They were, they were bent on evil and wreaking havoc. And yet James is challenging us that, you know what, God himself does not tempt There is a reality and a responsibility that our fallenness is the result of our doing and not God's. Verses 16 and 18 kind of clear this up a little bit. So James challenges a false understanding of who God is, saying, it's not God tempting you. He can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And then in verse 16, he says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Here it is. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting of shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he has created. Every good and perfect gift is from God. He's the giver and the provider of all that is good, not the source of our temptation. There is a very high view of God here. Not one in which he is the one to blame, but that he is the one to be approached and asked for wisdom from, because he is the one who sees all things clearly. This is the God that we are invited to trust in. Trust is the title of this section. It takes trust to be an apprentice. I think I have time here. I was... Um, to illustrate this, so I'd, I'd uh, moved on from my, my, my cousin, and uh, I'd gotten a call. Um, actually, I was in between work, and I was going back to Ambrose, and my wife and I were driving. Literally, I just finished helping my dad on the farm, and we're driving back to Calgary. Uh, we're on the road, and Jenna is like, so, it's November. Your classes don't start till January. What are you thinking of? What are you thinking of doing? And I'm like, I'm not too sure. I mean, we're living with your dad and we'll just kind of see what comes up. I know, I was a man of her dreams, right? Who, what wife doesn't want to hear those words? I don't know. We'll just see what happens. As we're driving, I'm checking my email and, no, oh, Jenna's driving. I check my email just to clarify. <laughs> You'll see me pulled over with a police cruiser as I leave church, I'm sure. Jenna was driving. Uh, I got a ding, so I checked my email. 
and we'd just been having this discussion. And I go through and I was like, oh, I got, a, I got, a, I got an email from my friend Jeremy. And uh, I went to high school with him and I knew he was out in kind of High River doing some work and we'd lost touch, but I had an email from him. And I read the email and I, we actually started to laugh because the email is literally, Jeremy says, hey, Chris, I hear that you had some HVAC experience and I'm in that industry now and I'm just wondering if you'd happen to have any time. I, I'd love you full time, but if any hours you could give to help me out, that would be great. And Jen and I are just like, this is an immediate response to prayer. And so Jeremy ends up being just an amazing boss. And by amazing, I mean, you know, we have the conversation about what we're, you know, what, what I'm going to get paid an hour. And I'm like, wait, I'm like thinking, man, if I, if I could come out of this with 15 bucks, that would just be amazing. That'd be amazing. But I'm, I'm going to let him lead the conversation, right? Because I don't want to show all my cards. So we're having this conversation. And I'm like, well, what do, you, what do you think, Jeremy, what can you afford to pay? And he's like, wow, Chris. He's like, you know, he's like, I think I could probably start you off at about like, you know, $22 an hour, and I went, well, done. See you Monday. Like, no problem. Okay? This is the kind of bossy. I got to brag him up because I go and I meet up with him Monday. I got my tools, and he's like, you got your own tools? I'm like, yeah, I got my own tools, but my Makita bag, I'm like, I'm ready to go. He's like, wow. We go to a couple of jobs. Uh, he's doing some quoting and doing some marking out, and I'm able to give some advice. He asks me my opinion. I said, oh, I think we should do this and do that. And he's like, okay. And we go to another job, and I help him unload furnaces and stuff like that, and we're getting set up. And I'm just kind of going about my business. I'm like, I realize, like going, hey, like, this is just what I do. I, I, I know this kind of work. I can do this kind of work. And I'm just going about my business. Hop in the, hop in the truck and we're headed off to another job. Because you know the bosses, they end up doing lots of driving around, it seems. I, that's just what I noticed. But, so hop in the truck with him and he's like, Chris. He's like, Chris, I'm awfully sorry. I'm awfully sorry. I, don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to pay you 22 bucks an hour. And I was like, oh, no problem, Jeremy. As long, you know, as, long as there, you know, maybe you can give me a, bread, a loaf of bread or something just to keep my family for this. And he laughs and he says, no, no, no. He's like, you don't understand. He's like, I'm going to pay you $27 an hour. And I'm like, what? Who gets a $5 raise in the first day? I'm like, this is amazing. And I mean, it gives you an idea. This was all before like the big crash of Alberta and thing, you know, like money was real tight. So this is like the glory story. Anyways, it made me believe, and that's not credit to myself, but simply saying that my time under my cousin learning how the trade works and applying my hand to that, that it was, I was trained up in it. Now, what happens is uh, months pass, things are going good. I end up, it's 25 below. I end up in a house with no heat in it, no insulation, down South Calgary. The only heater that was in the house was supposed to be some construction heaters, even the house isn't heated, but is this little 220 heater downstairs in the basement to keep the water line from freezing. And uh, it's all boarded up and like you can kind of get in there, but it's the only warm place in the house. And uh, I got sent back to this job because somebody had forgot to put the Bali boots on the, the vents up in the ceiling because it was a, an attic design, duct design or whatever. So I'm the guy nominated to go do that. Wow. Talk, talk about, if I'm talking about trials at work, that was probably my worst day. 25 below, fingers freezing, trying to get tape to stick to frozen metal on plastic, standing at the top of a ladder. Didn't matter how good my boss was, you guys, I wasn't thinking very kindly of him. Doesn't matter how generous, how much he was paying me, I had some not pleasant thoughts. And it's the same for us that it's so important that we have a right view of God, that we know who he is, that he is good, that he's generous, that he's approachable, that he's available, that he's willing to give wisdom, all these things that James is talking about. And yet if we're honest, when trials come, it raises questions. But you know what? God is able to carry us through those questions. Are you trusting God or are you trusting yourself? It takes trust. We need to have a right understanding of God and to trust him in the midst of what we're going through. I'm going to blaze through section four. We're just about wrapped up here, you guys. Verses 19 to 21. Here's where James leads us. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And it's even easier to avoid getting angry if you are slow to speak and listen well. I can totally relate with that. If I walk in the house and I am slightly agitated or annoyed, that's one thing. But if I start opening my mouth and venting about my day, it's not very long and I am right piping hot. And it would have just been better for me to keep my mouth closed. James encourages us to accept the word, the word that has been planted in us, which saves us. He goes on, verse 22 and 25. Speaking about this word, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at, a mirror, looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. Blessings follow as we walk in obedience to the word. Sometimes we think we need to be obedient in order to receive a blessing, and yet that's actually a wrong way of looking about it. We need to understand that it isn't our obedience to God that warrants his blessing of us. But rather, the way that it actually works is that when you step out in obedience to what God has told you, his blessing is already on you as you go. That's the right path. His blessing carries with you. So how do you experience the blessing of the Lord? Walk in obedience. It's not about being obedient first and then getting blessing. Though being obedient reaps a harvest and reaps a blessing later. No, God wants us to be obedient so he will move heaven and earth behind our little decision. And I find that so much more encouraging that when I'm faced with a difficult situation, especially matters of integrity where you're like, ah, I'm torn. I don't like, I really want to do this, but I know that this is the right thing that God would want me to do. But it's the tougher thing to do. That you can know that it's God's blessing is, behind, is with you as you're making that choice. The blessing goes with the obedience. Verses 26 and 27. Here we go. It says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that our God, that God our Father accepts is as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There are strong words here that tie these ideas together. The tongue is difficult to control, and yet when it's not controlled, it actually renders our religion worthless. True to James's writing, it su uh, suggests what is looking after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This idea of doing, acting, movement. Your own personal maturity for the sacrificial love of the community. Here's our last slide. It takes practice to be an apprentice. If I had to summarize this final section, it would be that. So what will you work on this week? I feel like James did such a good job um, in explaining sort of the expectations of us here. That each time he says, you know, you may face trials, at every stage, I don't know if you caught that or not, but at each stage as we looked at it, he always brings it back to something about God. It's rooted in God. A life lived with 
God. And so maybe, maybe if you're new here and you've never understood what it means or what it takes to kind of be a Christian or you're not even sure of what your next steps are, I would challenge you to just keep these four words in mind. That it takes commitment. Are you all in? It takes focus. What matters most? It's a relationship with Christ. Not taking the easy way, but being people of integrity. Third one, trust. Are you trusting more in your own ability or are you trusting in God, in who he is? Because that's the only way this works. And then the final one, this idea of practice, that we actually set our hands to motion, that our religion or our beliefs are not just something that we have the convenience of holding in our hearts and our minds, but there's something that God speaks to us about the responsibility of taking what he has spoken and sown into our lives and stepping out and acting on that. Being people of action, practice. I'm going to close with this story. Um, I was uh, hearkening back to my early days, and uh, I was given a task of uh, installing kind of pipe, pipe supports, so that would support kind of the pipes that were run into the heat running. And so I got a, a metal pipe support, which was just a long kind of metal sort of bracket, and this hammer. I thought this was just the weirdest looking hammer. I'd never seen a hammer like this until I started doing sheet metal. Then I learned why. The reason it's so weird looking and has such sharp, right-angled corners is that when you're banging duct together, square duct, a round ball-peen hammer would mark the tin and make it look horrible when it was hanging up there. And so this is the way that you do it. So anyways, but it's a bit of a smaller kind of hitting surface area with a hammer. Anyways, I was told to put these pipe supports in, and it was a very simple task. You climb up on the ladder, my cousin, he showed me. Take the pipe support. You climb up on the ladder. You go up to the floor joist, and you hit it once here, and it sinks into the floor joist. And then you hit it once here, and it sinks into the floor joist. He comes back down. He hands me my hammer. He said, go and do likewise. I said, okay. He didn't use those, quite those words, but my turn. I go, put my ladder up. I'm hitting this thing. It's not going into the floor joist at all. In fact, the bracket is all bent up and mangled. I have to get a new one. Throw it down. I go back up. It takes me the better part of like 15 minutes to bang this thing in. And I'm embarrassed, frustrated, and annoyed that it's taken me so long to do this. And the whole time, my cousin was like, are you getting it, Chris? Are you there yet? Don't worry. You'll get there. You'll get there. And I just remember being super embarrassed and thought, I should just go home now. I'm not going to make a Tim Basher. But I kept showing up. My boss was gracious. I kept showing up. I kept working, much more other tasks. And an interesting thing happened. It was probably towards the end of my time with my cousin, and uh, we were working at a job in Cochrane, and uh, he hired a new guy. And he said, Chris, I want you to sh show this new guy around the thing and then get him putting up pipe supports, uh, and, uh, and that'll be it. So I took this new guy, explained the job to him, uh, came to the thing and said, you know, you know, my cousin wants you to start uh, with pipe support, so here's, here's generally what we're going to do. I said, and here's what you do. You ladder down, pipe support, hammer my hand. I walked up the ladder. I went tink, 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 came down, handed him the hammer, and said, that's all there is to it. He said, okay. I walked away from that going, did I just do that? <laughs> that was awesome. And what made it even more awesome was that 15 minutes later, Elvis is like, I think you need to go check on your guy. Sorry, Elvis is my cousin. Uh, he says, I think you need to go check on your guy. He's still on that pipe support. So I went back, and sure enough, there's a pile of mangled pipe supports on the ground. And he's just really struggling. And he's in the same spot I'm at, where I was years before, just embarrassed and feeling like he's not getting it. And I was able to say, hey, it's all right. I was horrible at this when I first show up. Here's how you do it. To show them again and say, don't worry. You'll get there. Keep going. You'll get there. I feel like the Lord would say the same thing to some of us this morning. That maybe you've been trying and you've been working at this thing for a while, but you feel like all you have to show for it is a mangled bunch of pipe supports at the base of a ladder. And you're thinking, I can't do this. And God would say to you, you'll get there. Keep going. I'm with you. 
You see, James gives us such a beautiful picture of this high view of God that he's not an authority standing over us demanding perfection, but he's the risen Savior who walks with us amidst our trials, encouraging us, equipping us, giving us wisdom. He is the one in whom we can trust. So I'm just going to invite the, the worship team to come up. Oh, are we doing it? Maybe I preached too long. They're wandering. Here we go. And as they play, I'd like us in this final song to simply take kind of stock at where you're at. Where is it in your relationship with the Lord that maybe you feel like there's something left wanting or you're needing help in? Matters of commitment, being double-minded, having lost focus, not being able to trust, or feeling like you're frustrated at the, at the practice. I'd like to just invite you to open your hearts and invite God into that space and allow him to minister to that need this morning. And as always, at the end of, at the end of this last song, if, if you would like prayer, we have prayer people that are happy to be up at the front. I'll be up here as well. We'd be more than happy to, to, to pray with you uh, about anything. So with that, I'll just turn it over to you guys and...